0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex premium diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
1: Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host,
0: Mike Pearson. Hello folks, and thanks for tuning in to AOA. Looking at the world of agriculture today, we continue to see volatility in the markets. Grains are sharply higher on this Thursday with wheat still leading the charge. Those front months up 75 and 62 cents respectively. We'll discuss that in a little more detail with Dale Durkholz of Grain Cycles in segment two. In segment three, we're gonna take a look at the carbon programs and carbon markets that are available out there right now. Adam Kramer of Consys, he's an agronomist there. He's been working with these programs he's going to give us an update now that we've had a few years to see how they function in practice and at the end of the show we're going to talk with josh linville stonex fertilizer director obviously the fertilizer market has been in the news with this action in ukraine josh will give us an update on how things look supply chain wise as we head towards this spring But before we get into all of that, we are going to talk with Dr. Michael Dykes. He's the president and CEO of the International Dairy Foods Association. USDA is looking ahead to school lunches as students return full time to the classroom. Michael, what are they thinking about at USDA? Are there any major changes that they are looking at as these uh, new lunch proposals are coming out?
2: Oh, Mike, one of the things that uh, we at IDFA are working on is the school lunch program as it relates to flavored milk, uh, low-fat flavored milk. There's been some confusion in the schools since the Obama administration had gone to uh, no-fat, no uh, fat-free milk uh, flavored milk for schools. Uh, the Trump administration changed that, uh, but there's been some confusion about that within the school system. So in February, USDA uh, updated their policy and made it clear that schools can continue to serve the low-fat flavored milk in the schools. And so we're working with the school systems around the country to make sure that they all know that that's the case now. Uh, and we've done a, a survey on that amongst voters. And we're finding that about 90% of the New York City voters with children in public schools want the meals in public schools to be healthy. And about the same percentage, 90% in New York City, uh, 85% nationwide, want low fat flavored milk to be a school option uh, in, the, in the school months program.
0: Michael, I couldn't help but notice that emphasis on New York City in this poll and New York voters more broadly. I know with Eric Adams, the new mayor of New York City, has announced that Fridays will be vegan lunch days at uh, New York City schools. Was that part of the thinking behind launching this poll?
2: Well, it it was. He had also said uh, he was thinking about banning flavored milk in schools. He has not done that. A low-fat flavored milk is still in uh, in the schools, even on the vegan Fridays that he implemented in in, uh, February. Uh, So we are putting forward information to him, to the governor, and to the state legislature in Albany uh, that banning uh, flavored milk in schools is a bad idea. We have seen In LA, for example, they did that, and what they find is students don't participate in the meal program, and they waste a lot of food because the milk doesn't taste well. So LA reversed their position, and what we're finding also is New York City has about 80,000 fewer students on the meal plan, so they need to be looking at things to get greater participation in the school lunch program rather than less, because we also know that for many children, The school lunch is the healthiest meal of their entire day.
0: Yeah, that's the truth. This is food that's available. It's got to be nutritious. And importantly, it's got to be edible. The students have to eat it. I remember chocolate milk in our lunchrooms when I was a, a, a tyke and in high school. And that was one of the highlights of my day, Michael. And I'm sure that's true for a lot of students across the country. As we think about the USDA turning their focus back to school lunches, Michael, is there are there any big trick chains, excuse me, are there any big ideas that are percolating in the USDA that you think our audience needs to be aware of?
2: As it relates to school school meals?
0: Uh, yeah, school meals, now that we're looking ahead a little bit longer term, students are back in session, it's a new administration in D.C. Is anything big changing?
2: Well, we, we just think uh, the school meals is a massive uh, undertaking with all the, the school nutrition association, all the cafeterias across the country. We just need, we, we believe uh, USDA's new policy affirming the low-fat flavored milk, we need to get that information out far and wide that parents, and we've seen the role of parents in schools and decisions about school, parents want the school meals to be nutritious and healthy. Parents want low-fat flavored milk in the school meals, and we know that low-fat flavored milk has 13 essential vitamins and minerals uh, and nutrients that children need for growth, Development, healthy immune functions, and just our overall wellness, and that the school meal is the healthiest and most significant part of a healthy diet for many, many, many children. So that's to me is the biggest thing we're doing, uh, uh, Mike, to, to to move this forward.
0: That is good to hear. And you talked about not just this is popular in New York State. This is popular across the country, both with parents and with with non-parents as well. A lot of folks who just remember school uh, flavored milk have f- favorable opinions of it. Michael, as as you did your poll, were there any breakdowns or any factors that surprised you in the responses?
2: No No, you know, uh, so many things today, Mike, when you poll uh, we poll parents, we poll voters. Uh, with the cross tabs so many things you poll today are very come break down on partisan lines the thing about this uh, low flavor low fat flavored milk in schools it is equally supported by Republicans and Democrats so if I if there was one surprise in the survey I would say the fact that it is it is not a partisan issue parents see this alike whether they're Democrats or Republicans
0: it's nice to find some areas of bipartisan agreement. <laughs> Michael, we probably ought to explain the terms. We're talking about low-fat flavored milk. Would that be both 1% and 2% fat uh, fat milk, or are we talking just 1% in the low-fat category?
2: We're talking just 1%. And the thing I'd like to add, Mike, uh, our milk processors in the last 10 years have uh, reduced by 50% the added sugar in flavored milk. And they've lowered the calories by 40 40 calories on average. So we're talking 1% flavored chocolate strawberry uh, with 50% less added sugar and 40 fewer calories than than just 10 years ago.
0: That is really impressive. As I look at the broader uh, U.S. ecosystem, there has been a big push towards whole milk, towards utilizing butter, really embracing the fat content in a lot of dairy foods. Michael, is there any opportunity for that to push its way farther into school lunches?
2: Well, there's talk about that in Congress, uh, and I think uh, we are working across the dairy industry. Uh, We're encouraging the checkoffs to do more on the education on health and wellness around dairy products. Uh, We're going to be working with the coalition on the upcoming dietary guidelines to see if we can't get that uh, fat requirements raised. Because of every point you're making, we've seen an uptick in consumption of 2% in whole milk. Uh, and I think the basic reason for that, Mike, is uh, it's tastier. People enjoy it. And we know health uh, and wellness is a big attribute that consumers are looking for. And we know milk and dairy products
0: meet that need. They certainly do. And I love that whole milk. Love that flavor. Big thanks to Michael Dykes, President and CEO of the International Dairy Foods Association. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mike. And folks, stick around when we return. Dale Durkholz of Grain Cycles will look at these markets. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart.
2: Every day, DTN and Progressive Farmer editors are posting unique original content to their website at DTNPF.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crop, cattle, equipment, technology, and more. They are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today.
3: As a truck driver, I've learned how important road safety is. I know that large trucks need more time and room to stop. That's why I always hang back and follow other vehicles at a safe distance. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, try to remember to always give trucks extra space when you merge in front of them. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov.
4: Heading to Commodity Classic in New Orleans this year? Be sure to stop by the UPL booth to talk with their crop specialists. We also have some exciting news we'll be unveiling that you won't want to miss. Mike Pearson of Agriculture of America will be broadcasting live from the UPL booth on Thursday, March 10th from 9 to 10 a.m. Stop by booth 5320 or listen live at 9 a.m. on the Agriculture of America radio network. We look forward to seeing you at this year's Commodity Classic in New Orleans.
5: Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle.
3: I like that too.
5: Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad
0: Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
1: keeping farmers and ranchers informed AOA now back to Mike Pearson
0: Welcome back, folks. Thanks for making AOA a part of your day on this Thursday, March 4th. We continue to see the market impact of the war over in Ukraine as Russia has invaded that country. And the commodity markets in particular have really gone bonkers. We're continuing to track that here on AOA. And today, to help us make a little bit more sense of what's going on, Dale Durkholz of Grain Cycles, longtime agrivisor, senior researcher. Dale, thanks for taking the time to join us today.
6: Good talking to you, Mike.
0: Let's look first, Dale, if we could, at the energy sector. That's one of the places we're really watching for the impact of this russia Ukraine crisis. We've seen crude oil, WTI, West Texas Intermediate, come back a little bit off the highs. Do you think the market has, has capped out for the time being?
6: You know, who knows? You know, you have to play these markets now on a day-by-day basis. And and to be honest, there's two markets that that, you know, You watch closely, especially in the ag community, one of those being crude oil and the other one being the wheat market at this point. And and what you really are trying to identify on any given day is a sign that suggests this game is exhausting itself. You know, you go back into the wheat, which I was looking at a little bit earlier this morning, and you look at open interest in wheat futures in Chicago wheat, which is really leading the parade, and we've been down virtually every day going back to the middle part of February. So we don't have new buying coming into this mix. So it's a matter of at what point do those last late shorts finally get done pitching their losing positions and that's probably the day we peek it out.
0: Well, they I mean as you watch that decline in open interest, do you think we're getting close to that day in the wheat market or do you think with this this fresh news from Ukraine we'll see that OI number start to rise?
1: Uh
6: I don't think so because I was looking at the the weak commitment of traders, and admittedly, you know, the one that was out Monday was roughly a week old. It was delayed a day because of last week's holiday. And the big the big money, uh, the funds, they are not playing this game at all. They've liquidated out and gone, and I don't think they're participating. Simply, the, the risk has gotten too high in this game, and I think that's really the thing that people don't appreciate is when you're having moves like we're having here today, your risk of being wrong is just, so magnified that you just shun the market and stay away.
0: Well, as you think about this wheat market, Dale, on the export side of things, on the fundamental, on-the-ground wheat shipments, have we seen any global rearranging of shipments or tenders quite yet, or are most buyers internationally hanging back, waiting to see what shakes out?
6: Well, we are seeing some very short-term things being rearranged in here, especially people that had wheat that was are ready to come out of the ukraine and or out of russia you know which is really backed up and blocked off now so those people may be doing some short-term scrambling may even be uh just delaying tenders altogether, not buying uh, the market at the high price at this juncture long term though i think uh, we're going to have to all rethink our our trade flows and how this whole picture might look and i got to thinking here the last couple of days you know we might see a situation to where you have a trading block of China and Russia trading with each other, and I'm speaking of the grains and maybe even in in the energies too. And we may throw Ukraine in that depending on how this shakes out, which we really don't know yet. But those two may be trading with each other, so China may go to Russia and choose to, to source all of their corn and or whatever wheat they may need. And the thing we have to be careful of in this mix on a longer haul is that China could actually overbuy their needs out of Russia and or Ukraine and then in turn sell a, a part of their production into the world market. So, you know, I'm basically getting of the attitude you have to look at the fundamental structure outside of those three countries see where we're at structurally and then start to look at that picture going forward with them being a separate block and seeing how they interface with the rest of
0: the world it will be interesting to see how that plays out particularly as you mentioned dale if china does start becoming effectively a reseller now that they're potentially being supplied with uh, russian and ukrainian grains that could be a way that the russians might avoid some potential sanctions
6: well it's an indirect way of doing it no doubt about it you know crude oil is not an easy way to do it you know and so far the west is still buying energy out of uh, out of Russia at this point which is kind of interesting because that's financing their war machine but i think even uh, the west is going to tend to shun you know energy out of Russia as much as possible so china may end up going into russia and buying their needs out of russia themselves and the other thing we've got to think about with with the russian wheat in particular is which they've sold a lot out of the black sea that stays in the middle east there aren't problems and i don't foresee problems of russia dealing with those middle eastern countries so we may see western countries just lose the middle eastern markets altogether in terms of wheat and maybe even some pea grains
0: yeah, you know, that would be interesting to watch. But even Dale, as you mentioned, if, if Russia and China partner up, they might have a pretty good trade deal on feed grains, but they're not going to be able to meet Chinese demand for soybeans. We've sta- seen them step back to the U.S. market in a big way recently. Dale, it's one thing to see China make purchases, but are we starting to see them actually take physical delivery of these beans they're ordering?
6: Well, you've noticed, you know, the bulk of the purchases of recent anyway seem to be more focused into the new crop. And, you know, they're going to need to have beans out of the U.S. come the beginning of our new crop year because they're a big importer of U.S. in in our, let's say, late summer through early winter period or midwinter period here when Brazil, Argentina are virtually out. So they're starting to cover those needs in the long haul. In the short term, you know, there are some ship backlogs down in Brazil that they're having to deal with and manage, but those aren't terribly unusual. So I don't know that they're going to be a big buyer of beans out of our old crop here, other than they may be looking to to source some beans for the very end of our marketing year, in other words, very late summer. But I don't see anything coming up front any sooner. The, The demand base physically is going to shift to South America, and that's always going to be the case.
0: Absolutely, it is. Dale, as you think about apologies for that, as you think about how this could play out, and you look at really kind of the long term mix, I'm hearing from a lot of growers saying that this is comparable to the 70s. We've got inflation, we've got a war with an energy supplier. In your mind, does that seem like a viable comparison?
6: You know, the, the 1970s are the one thing you have to go back to and look at because we we had inflation really rampant, running out of control. We had a lot of money thrust into our economy and some of the rest of the around the world, and so that was a really a big issue. We also had economic activity tend to stagnate back in that period, which we're seeing bits and pieces of now. Interestingly enough, when you look at the 1970s, I saw a graphic yesterday, and they were looking at the weekly change in the Bloomberg Commodity Index, and we're up at a level we had back in weekly change back in the middle 1970s, and there were only two other periods that came close to that. One of those was 1980, and the other one was 2008. So you have to wonder, when you look at that percentage change that we're dealing with with a broad-based commodity index peaking out at levels we had back then that maybe we aren't getting somewhere close to uh, peak activity in this inflationary bias for the short term. But it's going to be a matter. You watch crude oil, you watch wheat, and I think that's what everybody's got their eyes glued to.
0: I think you're right, Dale. As you think about that inflationary bias starting to peak, what should growers be thinking about to manage some of the prices we're seeing fairly long term into the future?
6: Well, I think you have to look at new crop 22. And I mean, you know, even, albeit with fertilizer prices being high, you have to understand at this juncture that There's still profit on the books, and you have to really deal with that. The other thing I'm starting to hear at this point is in Europe, they're talking about allowing farmers to produce crops on fallow land. And I know overnight there was a thought put out here in the U.S., should we open up the CRP? Those are always risk factors you have to deal with. So producers themselves have to understand there is downside risk in this game as well as upside potential, and you have to manage that downside risk. Going beyond the the crop we'll produce this fall and looking on to 23, there are just so many unknowns out there. I wouldn't say not to start tiptoeing in and pricing some of that 23 production that that you have scheduled out there, but I think at this point you go slow until we see some kind of identifiable peak in the markets in the short term on those 23. The 22, I think you have to start getting profits guaranteed at this point.
0: All right, get them locked in, but stay nimble. Sounds like the message here. Dale Dirkholz of Grain Cycles, thanks for joining us today.
6: Good talking to you, Mike.
0: And folks, stick around. We'll be talking to Adam Kramer, a Kansas agronomist about carbon markets when we return. Stay with us on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Mextron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart.
7: Oh, nice engine. Supercharged? Yep. High porosity and aggregates? Yep. Porous medium for gas exchange? Uh Uh-huh. Microbial catalytic potential and repository for carbon and nitrogen?
0: Check, check, and check.
7: Oh,
3: man, that is good under the hood. And to think I used to be impressed with hammies.
1: So, when was the last time you looked under the hood at your farm's production engine? At your soil? Is it as healthy and productive as it can be? Stop by your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out and unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by NRCS and this radio station.
4: You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look at the grain and livestock markets, we see grains pushing higher once again, led by the wheat markets. A little bit of spread trading going on in quartered soybeans between the old crop and new crop, but we are mostly higher. Livestock are turning mostly lower here as we work through our morning trade. Weekly export sales and shipments. We saw old crop export sales were down a bit from a week ago, especially on the corn side, we were weaker. Japan was the Um, biggest buyer for new crop corn. Another big week of soybean sales 2.24 million metric tons mostly in the new crop which were almost all to China. Unknown and Egypt were the top buyers of old crop beans. And we also saw on the daily export wire more soybean sales to China 132,000 metric tons and we also saw 337,000 metric tons of corn to unknown destinations of the soybean total 66,000 of that is for old crop. The rest is for new crop while the corn delivery is all for old crop as we take a look at numbers may corn up 13 and a half and a half December new crop corn that is up three and a half six twelve at three quarters may soybeans up 11 1674 November beans up nine and a half at 1462 may bean meal up nine dollars a ton 457 may bean oil up down 67 points now seventy five twenty. March Chicago wheat up 91.5 11:50, May up 75 11:34, March Kansas City wheat up 41 11:14.5, May up 56 one and a quarter. Minneapolis spring wheat for March currently up 60 and 3 quarters at 11:20, April hogs down 45 10585, March feeder cattle down 162 15667, April live cattle down 97 13912, crude oil down 53 cents at 11007. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen reporting.
6: You are not your diagnosis.
4: A medical chart is not your identity.
5: And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding.
0: We're fighting macular degeneration,
5: retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal
1: diseases.
0: We fund.
5: We fight. We We win. win. We, we, we are are the the foundation foundation fighting fighting blindness. Together, We are fighting blindness.
0: Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
4: Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike
1: Pearson.
0: Thanks for tuning in to AOA today, ladies and gentlemen. Over the past couple days, I've had the opportunity to travel around the central part of the Corn Belt. And I tell you what, it was warm. It was over 60 degrees, and I saw more planters pulled out of sheds being worked on than I have seen in quite some time. This warm weather got folks thinking about planting season, which got me thinking about despite the volatility in the markets, despite what's happening in Europe right now, the American farmer is preparing to put that next crop in the ground. I wanted to talk about what are some of the opportunities developing in the field of soil health, in the field of carbon sequestration, and to help us break through, break down what all is going on in this sphere, joining me next is Adam Kramer. He's an agronomist with Consus ROI, and Adam, you were the 2020 International Certified Crop Advisor of the Year. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Hey,
8: thanks for having me.
0: I wanted to get a little bit of your background, Adam, you've been working in soil health for some time. What was it that prompted you to jump into that field?
8: Well, I grew up on a farm in Southwest Iowa. Now I'm working all over the place, but we live and work in the Driftless area uh, now in Southwest Wisconsin. So uh, I went to school at Iowa state and I have, I think the typical story of most farm kids that grew up in Iowa and went to Iowa State until maybe a few years ago, I kept to myself and did my job. And we've been really fortunate to surround ourselves with good people, and they've helped promote the work we do. Um, If you live and work in the Driftless area, it's top of mind that these things are going to be important. We're right near the confluence of the Wisconsin and Mississippi River, and so our work is right at ground zero. Um, I've been a hands-in-the-dirt guy my whole life. You know, if I'm growing pumpkins, I want to grow the biggest pumpkin. And if I'm growing soybeans, well, you know, I want to make good yields and high returns. But there's a natural curiosity in how things work, and that's driven me into some spaces I don't think um, at one time were, were probably even possible.
0: Well, and I think that's what I want to talk to you about. Adam, specifically over the past several years, as we think about soil health, it has gotten a lot of headlines. We've seen the spotlight both from the federal government turn towards soil health, and we've seen state governments and and other non-governmental organizations looking at soil health and looking at how we can improve it across the corn belt. I know you've been very active in that space. Have you seen growers get more interested in soil health here over the past couple of years as this conversation about carbon sequestration has ramped up?
8: Oh, definitely, yes. I mean, more people are interested in what this all means than ever before. I think there's also a, a fear that if you don't jump in right away, you'll miss out. And I don't believe that's the case. Uh, to do this right is the most important thing for me. And I think, Farmers should be careful what they sign up for and, and how long the commitment is. You know, we're, in the carbon space especially, we're talking about a closed market, uh, so there aren't the same transparencies and standards you'd expect uh, with an open market. And so today I've not yet signed up. Uh, we have some demonstration farms, and, uh, you know, I farm myself too, and demand is higher for offsets than we have a supply. So it's an exciting time to be in this space. But our industry is only just beginning to understand what all that is. And I'd remind everyone that the carbon conversation is much larger than agriculture. Uh, It doesn't look like a farmer can access buyers directly uh, yet. So if you're going to sell carbon, you're going to be working with a company or a group that is piling up acres and has relationships with those buyers, and hence you have this exchange. So that's really as simple as it is uh, to me although I think there are some offerings out there making it seem much more complex. And for now, I'm trying to help folks understand what farming practices are best for a net zero carbon footprint. And we need to begin adjusting the production plan and preparing for what is yet to materialize in that space. And we're confident this is going to be a common practice in the near future.
0: Well, and I think I'm hearing that, uh, that confidence reflected from a lot of growers I talked to, but it's, it's, It's reflected with a little bit of concern. Adam, right now, there are some premiums out there to attempt some of these things to work on some new practices in your farm. But if it becomes commonplace, I've got to imagine those premiums are probably going to fall away. So I would think a big part of your job is working with farmers to make these moves that make sense, given the market today and longer term as well, aren't they?
8: Well, again, uh, I'm pragmatic in my approach to all this. I mean, in very basic terms, carbon sequestration is adding biomass and discontinuing tillage. So implementing green cover, planting into that cover, and extending crop rotation, speed and process up. Uh, I was speaking at the NICC Soil Health Workshop a couple weeks back, and Jay Führer uh, spoke in front of me, and his presentation is a great presentation called uh, Farm Forever. And I'm like a lot of farmers in the fact that I, too, want to farm forever. Uh, Even after I'm gone, my legacy is in that land. But if I'm going to farm forever, I'd better be profitable or I'm not farming for very long. So as we marry these ideas of soil health and financial outcomes, we need to have a playbook that we can turn to in getting it done. And that's what we focus on the most. Uh, We want to do the right things on time, and the successful outcomes are going to happen. And that's the beauty of it to me, is that environmentally sound practices are agronomically sound practices. It's a win-win because as we improve our soil health, we realize greater returns. And there was a time I wasn't sure this was true, uh, but it is, and we're demonstrating that.
0: As you think about, excuse me, Adam, as, as you think about that playbook that is in the process of being written right now, there are a lot of growers who are curious about these programs, about these markets. They're curious about what might be out there. What is the first step? How do you narrow this field down to see what might work on your operation?
8: Well, that's a, that's a great question. You know, I, the first thing is I wouldn't sign up for anything you're not ready for or attempt practices you aren't comfortable with. So you need to do your homework and make a plan, you know, get your equipment right, and then go to the field and execute that plan. And if you need help with that, I'd talk to your NRCS, uh, your local jurisdiction there, or your extension people that you have a relationship with to get that done. And then the other thing, too, is just go to meetings where folks are sharing their experiences. You know, grower-led meetings are a a great option for that. Um, If you're talking about just the basics of how to enter the space, you know, through our demonstration, um, I'm not going to get into the details for sake of time here, but uh, the reason I'm so passionate about all this stuff is we took a farm in Northeast Iowa. We, we call it the UPA demonstration farm. Now, we've been on that farm since 2015. Uh, that farm's seen an increase in corn yield at 17%, but it's also seen a 12% reduction in cost to get that done. And during that same time, we've got a 37% increase in soybean yields while seeing a 17% decrease in cost to achieve that yield. So we have a three-year rotation. um, We do cover crops and we plant green. Um, Our organic matter is increasing, our plant nutrition is up uh, way more than the fertilizer I've I've applied. And I'm making more money farming this way. So where does that come from? I mean, I've decreased cost by using less trace, seed treatments, herbicides, and fungicides. And I haven't had an insecticide on that farm Uh, UP8 in five years but the biggest thing for me um, increasing that soil organic matter which is directly correlated to the carbon sequestration conversation that's going on Um, when you do that and it rains I don't get erosion I I get water infiltrating my soil and then that soil holds the, the water you know and I don't pay for that rainwater but it drives yield as much as anything I do So I'm creating a more resilient environment for my crops. Therefore, my crops are more resilient and I'm improving that soil health. And by doing that, I'm decreasing the stress in the environment. So all the other stuff we talk about uh, is semantic. Soil health is driving yield
0: it certainly is but the the comment i hear from folks is that okay building organic matter is going to help my yield it's going to improve some things but rolling on you putting on cover crops doing some of the additional stuff it's going to add to my cost and it's tough to factor in things like improved soil health or better water infiltration onto a balance sheet adam how are growers managing that that aspect of making sure this makes sense financially
8: well that's that's the trick, right? And so I would say at one point in time, I was as skeptical as anyone uh, when we started the demonstration to see if this was all going to come together. And we did everything that the playbook would say at the NRCS. We're we're utilizing an extended crop rotation. Uh, We never till that land and we we plant green. Uh, There are some initial costs of that. And uh, I guess what I would say is staying true to the fundamental Uh, disciplined practices that we put together it turns around much quicker than you would think so while you're looking at those initial costs you really have to use a multi-year plan Uh, you're going to forward market as best you can make sure that we know how we're coming in and out of those rotations then have some flexibility uh, inside the plan with contingencies and as you replicate that process you'll see uh, that help that soil health increase is gonna gonna improve tilth. And when we talk about tilth, we're talking about rooting depth. We're talking about emergence. We're talking about some of those things that we struggle with in spring, especially up north. Um, Those things are going away. So uh, we've got a data set to prove it. I think that's the biggest thing I would recommend to farmers. We gotta start getting current soil test information, benchmark your data, pay attention to where you started, and then measure where you went and did you achieve the results that you wanted, that's how you're gonna measure the success or not of these practices.
0: Absolutely. Adam, before we let you go, if listeners are curious about this topic, how can they reach out to you?
8: Uh, You can call uh, Conscious ROI or get on the website, I guess is a better way, and that'll direct you to all the folks involved working in that space.
0: All right, that's ConsusROI.com. Thanks to Adam Kramer. And when we return, Josh Linville has an update on the fertilizer market. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
5: Considering an online pharmacy? Explore BeSafeRx to find useful information and resources to help you purchase medicines safely online. A safe online pharmacy requires a doctor's prescription, has an address in the United States, has a licensed pharmacist, and is licensed by a state pharmacy board. It's best to stay away from online pharmacies that don't meet these criteria. Discover more helpful tips and resources at BeSafeRx. Go to FDA.gov slash BeSafeRx
4: each and every day dtn and progressive farmer editors are posting unique original content to their website at dtnpf.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions their award-winning newsroom covers markets news and weather while also providing insights on crops cattle equipment technology and more you'll find innovative topics like would you plant soybeans in december Experiments look at the possibility of boosting yields with early planting. Want to save time? Learn how through autonomous machinery systems. Will there be a surge in feed prices in 2021? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? The editors of DTN and Progressive Farmer are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today. Heading to Commodity Classic in New Orleans this year? Be sure to stop by the UPL booth to talk with their crop specialists. We also have some exciting news we'll be unveiling that you won't want to miss. Mike Pearson of Agriculture of America will be broadcasting live from the UPL booth on Thursday, March 10th from 9 to 10 a.m. Stop by booth 5320 or listen live at 9 a.m. on the Agriculture of America radio network. We look forward to seeing you at this year's Commodity Classic in New Orleans. Hey, wouldn't it be great if life came with a remote
0: control? You know, you could hit pause when you needed to. Or hit rewind. Like that time you knocked down that wasp's nest. Uh Uh-oh. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome. But prediabetes does. With early diagnosis and a few healthy changes, you can stop prediabetes before it leads to type 2 diabetes. To learn your risk, take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
4: Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome
0: back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to the show today. We've been discussing the market volatility. It's in the grains, it's in the energies, and it's in fertilizer. Josh Linville, the Stonex director of Fertilizer, joins us today. And Josh, I can't imagine you have been sleeping very well with all the moves happening in your industry.
7: Yeah, at this point, I think uh, sleep is what is, that's what other industries get to do. That's not for us. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well it has been crazy let's talk a little bit about urea prices last time we spoke they were moderating a little bit at the gulf with this fighting in ukraine has that
7: changed uh tremendously uh several weeks ago of course the trend you know it uh, it kind of slowed down and we we're actually starting to see some weakness out there some decent weakness from time to time but yeah uh this russia conflict has obviously thrown everything into turmoil uh the market is very very focused on what's going on over there Russia's a major player. Uh, They're a big exporter of all the fertilizers. And for urea, they account for about 14% of the global export trade. You know, We're hearing about vessels that are getting hit by missiles in the Black Sea. That's a major hit as far as uh, transportation goes. China, which is about 10% of the global export market, still is not changing their mode of not exporting. So we're talking about right now losing a quarter of the total urea export trade around the
4: world.
0: Josh, we heard heading into this season that, that we already had enough tons of urea on our shores. Is, is that still the case? Are we covered heading into spring planting? I mean, on the big picture?
7: We're not covered, but we're very, very well into it. So actually we're ahead of schedule and that's something that was actually leading to a lot of this weakness that we had been seeing several weeks ago. And thank goodness that we are because we'd be in a whole world of hurt right now that we couldn't even imagine if that wasn't the case. But we still got quite a bit that we need to bring in. Uh, we've got expectations that, you know, March could be five, six 600,000 ton. We still think we need to bring in another uh, 1.25 million ton April, May. And then June's usually a toss month, a couple hundred thousand there. So we still got tons that need to come in. And a lot of the market had gotten to thinking, hey, that'll come, that's a piece of cake. Well, normally it would, but there's nothing normal about what we're living through right now.
0: No, there isn't, Josh. And as you think about the fertilizers most likely to be impacted, the one I I continue reading about with regard to Russia and Ukraine is potash. How big of an issue is this war going to be for potash supplies globally, both in 22 and looking ahead to 23?
7: Yep, and because when we look at that, we have to look at it not only from the perspective of Russia, but then we have to start throwing Belarus into the mix. Uh, you know, those two have been working very closely with each other, uh, and Belarus is starting to see more more sanctions. They're getting cut off from the world as well. Russia accounts for almost 20% of the global operating capacity of potash, and then you look at Belarus; they're sitting at 15. Again, we're talking a quarter of the production around the world sits in that little area.
0: And is it just completely locked down right now? I know I understand at least that Belarus isn't able to export any of their potash supplies at the moment. I imagine sanctions on Russia are going to keep those locked up for the foreseeable future.
7: I think so. It's, that's one thing that surprised me. I will say, I will readily admit I was wrong. I, I didn't think the sanctions would have that much of an effect on it, but the world has come together in a way I didn't think we'd ever see again, and they are shutting them down. I think it'd be very, very hard for uh, Russia to find a place to export their product today. With
0: that being the case, really the, the unity of the global governments in these sanctions, Josh, does this make you concerned about fertilizer supply globally long term? I mean, once these things shut down, I've got to imagine it's a bit of a trick to get fertilizer production cranked back up.
7: Yeah, I mean, you look at what we did when we got through COVID uh, and how long it took us to find a normalcy from that point on. Uh, That is honestly, that's, you talk about not sleeping real well at night. That's one of those things that's kind of bothering me right now is that how long will it take us to find a new normal once we get back to it? And, you know, once we have lost it, how long are we going to start dealing with it? And frankly, these are all situations that you kind of theorize in school and you read about in textbooks, but we never really see in real life. We are living through a kind of an example you might have used to do in a test back in the day. This is this is I, I want to say interesting, but gosh dang, it, if you're a buyer of fertilizer, you sure don't want to hear interesting. You want other uh, terms used on it.
0: Yeah, that's the truth. May you live in interesting times is an Irish curse, I believe. And and we are certainly in interesting times. Josh, the other concern, European fertilizer production, natural gas prices continue to spike. So not only could we lose production out of Russia and Ukraine, are you expecting to see uh, European production drop off too with the rise in energy prices?
7: Well, I don't think that we'll see it so much in the rise of energy prices. That's something I originally thought and kind of came to terms with the fact that, hey, European countries know they need this fertilizer production because without the fertilizer, you don't grow the grains. Without the grains, you don't feed your people, and now you've got a serious issue on hand. So we've seen uh, even the plants that weren't profitable, the governments have stepped up and said, hey, we're going to help you. We're going to keep you running. We need your fertilizer to grow our crops. And so I, the high prices are going to make it more difficult. Absolutely. Are we going to see a little bit of a shift in production rates and things like that? We sure are. But the thing that really scares me the most, you've seen Putin throw out some really, really crazy uh, statements out there. He talks about the you know, increase in the readiness level of the nuclear capacities and things like that. If he decides to weaponize the natural gas flows, and what I mean by that, if he decides to shut off those pipelines going into Europe, Europe gets extremely tight. And then the governments there have to start making a decision. Our limited supplies do we give it to the industrial complex to make a ton of urea? Or do I give it to my people to heat their homes and cook their meals? That's not a decision. We know what that is. Right.
0: There's really only one winner in that case, especially with winter still in place. Josh, before we let you go, we've heard a lot about China shutting off exports. With the Olympics behind us and all this global turmoil, is there anticipation that China might reopen their fertilizer exports uh, eventually?
7: There's always a ton of speculation. A lot of people talk about it. You know, before it was uh, before the Olympics, it was well when prices get to a certain point they're going to start to export. Well, we blew right through those and no change. We're now done with the Olympics and we've seen no change from the government of China as far as that goes. Now they could change that tomorrow, and frankly I wouldn't blink an eye on it. Uh, That's how quickly they can change things. But I think right now I think they're looking around the world and they're seeing some of the prices they're being paid and they're saying, hey, we're keeping our prices down. We're keeping plenty of product for our farmers, and we're making sure we grow our crops. I, at this point in time, maybe I'll wake up tomorrow morning and be a little bit differently. But as of right now, when I look at it, I'm more worried about them extending it past June rather than stopping it early.
0: All right, it looks like that uncertainty is going to continue in fertilizer. Thanks to Josh Linville, StoneX Director of Fertilizer, for joining us today. Yes, sir. And, folks, tomorrow on AOA, we will continue talking about ag, and we're going to talk about some pressure on McDonald's to eliminate gestation stalls. Tune in tomorrow to AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
5: Today, more than six million Americans are living with Alzheimer's, and more than 11 million family members and friends serve as their caregivers. While researchers are working tirelessly to end Alzheimer's and all other dementia, the number of people living with Alzheimer's is expected to more than double by 2050. The toll of the disease is monumental, and its devastation affects family, friends, and especially caregivers. No one should face Alzheimer's and dementia by themselves, If you or someone you know is struggling to provide care to a loved one, please share this message. You are not alone. Free help and resources are available 24-7. To talk with an expert and obtain disease-related information, care and support services, call 800-272-3900 or visit the Alzheimer's Association website at alz.org. You are not alone.